you can go back literally decades to find the last time there's an example of bipartisan domestic economic reform. But, but both parties, I think, are pointing towards a frustration that somehow U.S. foreign policy isn't, isn't helping the middle class. In 2020, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace published their report, Making U.S. Foreign Policy Work Better for the Middle Class. The report used interviews from middle-income people in Colorado, Ohio, and Nebraska to gauge what the American middle class wants to see from foreign policy. At the end of the day, there's a question of what the American people want, and then there's a question of what I think a lot of our foreign partners want, and those aren't quite the same thing. The report proposes ways to better integrate U.S. foreign policy in order to strengthen the middle class and enhance economic and social mobility. And this was a big talking point in Biden's 2020 campaign and into his presidency. With a foreign policy for the middle class to win the competition of future. It's 2023. Having passed the midway mark in President Biden's term, how can we evaluate this idea? Does America need a foreign policy for the middle class? Who exactly is this American middle class? And does traditional foreign policy not align with their interests? This is a Global Insights by Network 2020. Today, Biden's foreign policy for the middle class. Joining us today is Zach Cooper, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and lecturer at Princeton University, Jonathan Kirshner, professor of political science and international studies at Boston College and professor emeritus at Cornell University, and Tom Weiler, former counselor and senior advisor at the Department of Commerce and current member of the board of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Moderating the discussion is Courtney Doggart, President of Network 2020. I'm going to start with you, Tom. Um, as I just mentioned, you contributed to the original report. And so would you mind just walking us through the impetus behind the report itself? Why was it written? And could you just outline some of the key findings um, that, that the report had? Sure. Well, first of all, Courtney, thanks for, for having me and, and obviously to the attendees. Thank you guys for joining. Uh, forgive me if I'm inarticulate. I basically just got off of an international flight, so I'm I'm trying my best to uh, to be thoughtful about what we're talking about today. Um, the, the report, I mean, it, and this probably won't surprise most of the people who are listening, or at least if they've, they've read parts of the report or part of the summary of it, right? The, the impetus of the report was there was a small group of us. Um, it really was, I guess, about three or four of us that that started in, in the aftermath of the election in 2017, including, of course, Jake Sullivan, who was also one of the contributors to the report and is now obviously the National Security Advisor, um, that had spent a lot of time reflecting on putting, to some extent, the politics of what happened in the 2016 election aside, really sort of thinking about and reflecting on what the American public had been had been telling us in the course of the election. Not necessarily just about the outcome, but sort of the tenor of the campaign itself, too. Um, and those of us who had come from the Obama administration and had been policymakers over the previous, um, you know, 
some of us, the entirety of, of President Obama's time in office, so eight years, but had been wrestling with things like TPP and the politics around TPP and how to get those things across the finish line, it became abundantly clear to us that the uh, the agreement between the people, between the United States, between Americans and sort of our political system about how we conducted foreign policy was fractured. Right. There was this sense that the American public had become dissatisfied with the costs associated with American global leadership. Um, and we had gone through a very rough period of time politically around, in particular, around TPP, but also with respect to, to TTIP, which was probably a little bit less well known, but was our aborted negotiation uh, for a free trade agreement with the Europeans. There just there was very little political momentum. Uh, behind these ideas. And obviously in the 2016 campaign, uh, both Secretary Clinton and, and Donald Trump opposed TPP. And we we were sort of reflecting on what this was telling us as, as former and potentially future policymakers um, about the uh, American public's appetite for American global leadership. And so we started thinking about what does that actually look like? What is what is um what is American foreign policy that the American people support look like going forward now in the 21st century? Um and we really wanted the group of people that were contributing this to to this report to be bipartisan, right? If you if you look at the people who are the contributors, we tried very hard to make sure that there were republican voices and democratic voices um because we didn't think it was just a sort of an Obama era issue. We thought it it had gone back quite a bit further, decades, in fact. Um, and we we had basically become, uh, to some extent, I suppose I'd say sick of the argument that was being made to the American public that, well, wait a second, the era of globalization is we knew it, um, American global leadership, our free trade agreements, all of those things were actually benefiting the United States. I mean, we, you know, American political leaders, American policymakers had been making that argument with voluminous data for for many many years i myself had made that argument um to many people in, in front of many fora for for years is that actually american global leadership paid really significant dividends what had become clear is that while that is true in the aggregate right it wasn't necessarily true in every community across the country and there were certain communities that had been quite hard hit um, by the 20 years preceding sort of the the the, the 2016 election and that some of those concerns among people who supported American global engagement were not necessarily well heard. And so what we really wanted to do was take a granular look at three states and really try and understand how people in those states who benefited from trade, who benefited from American foreign policy uh, and, and American global leadership, we're actually thinking about these issues now, who, who was for it, who was against it, why, why not, and what that meant for policymakers going forward. And so that was that was the genesis of the report. And, I, you know, I, I say this um, without any any shame whatsoever. It was political. And I don't mean it was political in the sense of, you know, having Democrats elected or having Republicans elected, but it was political in the sense that we realized that there was this break between what the American public wanted and what um, leaders in DC had been doing. And we thought if, if you believe and you want American global leadership to continue, think tanks had a role to play, and particularly Carnegie and all of us, this group had a role to play in trying to figure out how to stitch that agreement back together in a way that didn't necessarily just look like what it did before. It wasn't just sort of, um, gluing back together, 
sort of the Washington consensus. It was trying to think anew what, what that might be. And so that was that was the genesis of the report. That's what we were trying to do. Um, I think it was pretty thought-provoking in many ways. And then it just so happened for 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 I think some some quite good reasons, it, it really did become in many ways the, the Biden administration campaign platform. I suspect that our host is going to dial back in momentarily, but I don't know if, if Jonathan or Zach, I guess what we're waiting for Courtney. I mean, I know both of you are very familiar with the report, but anything that I missed that you would you would add that you as you reflect on it? Well, I would just seize the uh, the questioner's initiative and ask you a follow-up question, um, which is you talked about the application of the report towards Biden's foreign policy. And I was wondering if you could just gesture at some of the specific things uh, with my interviewer's hat on that you thought the report had done to inform the foreign policy choices that were being made right now. And then later I'll circle back and talk in my own voice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's a great question. I I'll say quite candidly, I think in the early days of the Biden administration, there was a huge amount of um, commitment and sort of fidelity to the tenor of the report. But then as 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 happens, I think when you're in the White House and you've got the um, the challenges associated with actually being a policymaker and dealing with all the incoming that you do in the White House, I think in the last year, um, because a lot of what we've seen happen in Europe and other parts of the world, we've we've gotten away from it. Um, but I think in those early days, I think in the early the early part of the administration, from the Recovery Act on down to to frankly the way this White House was thinking about uh, engaging China, to be blunt about it, um, I think there was a lot of commitment to to the um, to the what the report found. Um, I think particularly on the idea that. You know, A, we weren't going to be pursuing trade agreements anymore. Um, B, the idea that we needed, we're, we're slowly getting Courtney back. Um, I think I think B, the other piece of the report that I think is quite seismic and different, and this might be boring to, to some of the people on the um, on the line, because it actually relates a lot more to process than it does to, to policy. Um, one of the conclusions we had is that actually, you know, for those of you who who've served in government, there is to some extent a a real silo between what you might call broadly the foreign policymakers and the economic policymakers. And one of the things that we had focused on in the context of the report, and and, and I in particular did, just given given my background and that I had been, you know, the policy chief at Commerce, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to break those silos down. Um, I think they went to great lengths early in this in this administration to do that. Uh, but then, then uh, you know, I think to to be fair to um, my friends who are serving now, um, you know, reality hits and real life hits, and, and you sometimes lose momentum behind you know best intentions um, when you're dealing with things like you know Afghanistan and then Russia invading Ukraine. Um, so I still think it's in the back of their mind. I still think they pay attention to it. Um, I think it, you know, metaphorically speaking, I think it sits on their desk. Um, I think they, I think probably in the run up to 2024, we'll hear about it more. Um, but I think there, there are some ways in which I think the process uh, of making foreign policy has changed in significant ways to incorporate more domestic economic interests into what we do and we don't do than, than it did certainly in my era and before. Thank you, Tom. And, and I apologize for dropping out there. My computer decided to restart and then my internet also decided to not cooperate, which is why I am now on my phone. So Thank you, everyone, for bearing. We just took we just took the reins. We just took the reins <laughs> and started and started going. Um, so, just jumping off from there, um, I wanted to turn to you, Zach. Um, um, 
Tom did speak about this idea of perceptions um, and how that is really important. And I know that you've um, you've done a lot of work on trade. Um, and I'd be curious just to get your understanding because that seems to be such a, an important piece of this, of what your understanding is of how Americans perceive and experience the economic effects of foreign policy, particularly within the realm of trade. Well, first, let me just thank you, Courtney, for for bringing us together, and you know, I'm I'm really looking forward to the discussion, um, and and I'll acknowledge that Tom and Jonathan have thought a lot more about uh, the domestic impacts of trade than than I have, but but you know, I do spend a fair amount of time going across the U.S. and talking with local communities about some of these issues, and I. I think part of what was so important about the Carnegie report was it, it wasn't just done in Washington, right? There are these three uh, related reports that um, are actually these discussions and you can go read them with folks in local communities and very different local communities about the, the aspects that concern them about U.S. foreign policy or, or the parts that have engaged them. And I think for me, what this uh, points to is the fact that on both sides of the aisle, there's been a feeling for maybe a decade or so that U.S. foreign policy was sort of not intended to help people on Main Street, but was intended to help some other group. And I, I think each party would define that group differently. Right. So Donald Trump would probably call these the globalists. Right. You know elites that fly around the world. Uh, and, and I think Democrats would probably have a somewhat different definition of, of who has been benefiting uh, from U.S. foreign policy in recent years. But, but both parties, I think, are pointing towards a frustration that somehow U.S. foreign policy isn't, isn't helping the middle class. Um, and I, I think you see that reflected in not just the Carnegie Report, but a lot of public debate. Um, my own concern moving forward is that I, I think we've sort of identified the problem, but maybe not identified a clear solution. And this is where I think the Biden team has struggled a little bit. Um, yes, the Trans-Pacific Partnership and, and other trade agreements uh, didn't get through, weren't popular enough at home to get enough political support in, in Washington. Um, but, you know, when I go abroad, what I hear is mostly a lot of our allies and partners saying what they want from the United States is trade. And what the U.S. is offering isn't so much trade. It's it's really, you know, trying to align regulations and uh, other economic policies. And certainly there's a place for that. But I think this is going to be part of the, the big challenge. And, and Tom was sort of pointing to this, right, that at the end of the day, um, there's a question of what the American people want. And then there's a question of what I think a lot of our foreign partners want. And those aren't quite the same thing. Um, and so just one one last thought on this, which is I do think the, the Biden team has done a lot of really important work where economic policy and national security policy meet, right, on, on issues like supply chains, which are incredibly difficult that reach not just the international community, but the domestic community. And they are trying incredibly hard to tie those two together. Um, and I, I think a lot of that has been quite effective. But the area that I, I think the both parties are stuck is basically the question of trade, right? And if we can't get trade agreements, what is it that the United States can offer, especially in Asia, um, where so many of our, our partners are really pushing hard for us to, to do some sort of trade agreement and the US just keeps saying no. Um, and I, I think that's the challenge, not just for the Biden team, but for any Republican administration that would come down the line as well. 
thanks. That that's a great point and one that I, I hope we can pick up later on. Um, Jonathan, I, I wanted to turn to you now. Um, one of the main suggestions of the report was to move beyond some of the outdated ways of thinking of policies, including some of the silos between domestic and foreign policy. So what are, in your mind, some of the policy anachronisms that are getting in the way of more effective foreign policy? And what do you think should be done to correct them? Thanks. I think that's a really important question. And, and my answer to that question really builds on what Tom started with and what Zach added. I would place the point of origin of a lot of this conversation with the debate over the, the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, we have so much focus on the outcome of the 2016 election that we lose sight of the nominating processes. And what happened in the nominating processes was that both political parties, traditionally who would have supported the TPP, were forced to renounce it in order to advance uh, to the general election. And I think that was a very big moment, um, and it really reflected a shattering of a longstanding kind of bipartisan internationalist consensus. Why? Um, this gets to your question. Um, but I don't think it was because people studied the TPP, read its contents, and decided, oh, I don't like this or I don't like that. Rather, the TPP represented a certain type of engaged, open internationalism that many people have become disenchanted with. Why? The answer is in your question, because we had lost the relationship between foreign policy and domestic policy, that the failures of our foreign economic policies in particular are really rooted in the failures of our domestic economic policies, which is, as we know, as we should be properly taught in all of our economics classes in college, international trade uh, generates winners and losers. The economic and philosophical case for free trade, which I support, rests entirely on this notion of the compensation principle, the idea that the winners will gain so much that they can share some of those gains with those who are disempowered by international trade, leaving everybody better off. But to quote a movie from the 1990s, dude, where's my car? I mean, the question then becomes for many people, you know, dude, where's my compensation? Because we know that some will gain and some will lose from this engaged internationalism. And in the absence of compensation, that becomes a, a pressing political problem, especially when you look at a 40-year trend of pressure on median household incomes, reduced uh, opportunities, um, and not just globalization and international competition, but also the pressures of automation. And so there's a great level of dissatisfaction with the way in which the domestic political economic policy that should be speaking to the consequences of our foreign policy, our foreign economic policy, um, are, are indeed absent. Um, and I think it's that frustration level that boiled over and, and was so consequential. And so we need to reimagine, re-understand foreign economic policy as having this crucial, this even essential domestic economic component if we are going to be able to pursue uh, a far-sighted uh, foreign economic policy. All right. Great. Um, so, Zach, I'm going to turn back to you now. Um, you mentioned this disconnect between what Americans want in terms of trade, and this is also something that, that Jonathan just mentioned. Um, and you also mentioned that what you're hearing um, from potential trade partners, particularly in Asia, um, is different. You know, they want more trade agreements. And so, um, one, one big area. I think right now 
um, that everyone is thinking about, especially uh, when it comes to TikTok and the like, is China. Um, and China may well be, I think, perceived by many Americans more as an uh, economic threat than a direct security threat. And so, you know, taking all of these big ideas, this disconnect between what Americans think of trade, what our partners think of trade, um, and, you know, in particular, the role of China, you know, how would you evaluate U.S. foreign and economic policy toward China and Asia in general? And what policy changes would you recommend to um, it achieve a, a better foreign policy that has uh, more direct impact on middle class Americans? That's, it's a great question. And, and look, you know, I, I think the first thing to acknowledge is that um, the United States has talked a lot about decoupling from China. But if you actually look at the trade data, the trade is about as high as it's ever been with the US and China, right? So, so you know, what you see in the news may not actually be uh, the same thing if you look at the data uh, on trade at the moment. But what's pretty clear to me is that we are going to see selective decoupling in certain areas, especially those areas that have dual uses, right? So um, things like microprocessors, we're, we're absolutely seeing a decoupling. Um, I think that's not the only area. The, the White House has been clear that they have basically three areas which they are most concerned about. The first is computing. So I think that that includes not just semiconductors, but also artificial intelligence, potentially quantum computing, and a couple of other related areas. There's a second area, which is bio and pharma, right? Um, anyone that was paying attention during COVID-19 and worried that you weren't going to be able to get your pharmaceuticals because so many of the precursors are made in China, I think has, has reason to be worried about this. And then um, the third area for the administration is, is green energy. Um, I think what we're seeing is the beginning of the decoupling in that first area, right? So TikTok falls into broadly a, a computing area, um, and we're seeing a decoupling there. Let's be honest, the United States didn't start this decoupling. The Chinese have been pretty decoupled from us on a whole series of technology areas, right? If if you're trying to use Google, Twitter, Facebook in China, good luck, because they haven't been allowing that for quite a long time. So um, it's not that the U.S. is beginning this, but the U.S. is, I think, uh, taking certain measures to protect ourselves, both against Chinese influence in the U.S. system, but also against some unfair Chinese trade practices that we had allowed to go on for far too long. Um, but that's a pretty selective group of, of uh, sectors, right? In, in most areas, we're actually seeing trade, if not stay the same, actually increase. And, and that's what the trade data shows. Um, so I think it's been it's been a really selective decoupling and it is slow and it is certainly occurring, but it's not sort of the fast moving uh, pace that you would expect if you were just reading about this in the news. Um, now, let me just turn and talk for a second about what I think the challenge is here, which is that the United States is arguing to our allies and partners that they should also selectively decouple and that we should jointly try and protect ourselves, maybe through a concept like friendshoring, right? We cooperate more with our allies and partners and rely less on China. I think that the issue with that is that in many ways, the United States appears to be pretty focused on some protectionist policies, right? The president talks a lot about buying American. If you listen to his State of the Union, he talks about this constantly. So for a lot of our allies and partners, they, they feel like the U.S. is asking them to decouple from China 
but not offering them the ability to get deeper into the U.S. market or uh, not incentivizing U.S. firms to rely more on the on production in those allied countries. And that's a message that I think is really difficult. So this is where I think the United States is a little bit stuck, and I'll end here, which is we've put forward this Indo-Pacific economic framework in Asia, which um, wouldn't really uh, address the core concern that a lot of our allies and partners have about American protectionism um, uh, or about you know barriers to trade. It addresses a whole series of issues that are absolutely important to Americans, but not be important in the same way to our allies and partners. And so I, I think uh, just as we were stuck before that the American people didn't think that trade was necessarily good for them, now we're stuck in, in the sense that our allies and partners aren't really sure that our deeper economic engagement is going to be good for them. And so I think we've got to deal with both sides of that coin at the same time. Courtney, can I just jump in there real quickly? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think Zach just made a very, very important point that I suppose I, I, I must say at the end of the day is sort of... A, um, I think he's exactly right. And I think it's a failure in some ways of, of where we weren't able to get with this report, right? Because part of why I think you're seeing this disconnect that, that Zach just described very eloquently is uh, because of what we were working on in this report, right? You've got the administration on the one hand saying, you know, we need to think more about um, what you might call decoupling from China. We need to think about supporting Americans and the American economy more, but we also want to think about this French shoring. But everybody's terrified in, in, in the administration that if we open up our economy more to our friends, you're going to get attacked politically exactly the same way that you did about opening up to China for 20 years and that you did in 2016. And we don't have an answer to that, right? And we didn't, we didn't, we didn't, unfortunately in the report, we didn't solve it. But but this is, I think, exactly uh what is being wrestled with right now. I mean, what what Zach just laid out is something that is um understood by senior policymakers in this administration. It was understood by us in writing this report. Um, and it puts you sort of between a rock and a hard place where you're trying to be responsive to what you're hearing from the American public, and they're forcing. Uh, American decision makers to to change their stripes in a sense to sort of behave differently, um, but there are consequences to it. Um, and in this case, the consequences are that we're you know we're we're creating a real stumbling block with our allies. Thank you. That it's uh, fascinating. And as we're as we're, I, I'll try to get on a couple more questions. And then move to the Q and A. So, for those of you who are listening, if you have any questions, as I know, as I know, I do, um, please feel free to put them in the Q and A box at, at any time. Um, Tom, I'm going to stick with you for a minute, and I'm going to stick in this idea of, of real world examples. Um, so, at the time that you wrote the report, I'm pretty sure that Russia's invasion of Ukraine wasn't on your radar. Um, and while Pew polls are still showing, I think, broad support for um, the Biden administration's policies in Ukraine, the support does seem to be softening a little bit, particularly as costs mount. And so I'd be just curious to get your sense of how you would evaluate um, the Biden administration's policy toward Ukraine in light of the recommendations of the report and sort of what, what you were seeing. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think it's a good question. Obviously, it 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 
you know, between the invasion of Ukraine and U.S.-China tensions, I mean, these days it sucks up much, if not most, of the oxygen in American foreign policy discussions. Um, I think, and this is, you know, Courtney, we, we talked a little bit about this when you got booted from your own call uh, briefly earlier. You know, there there is, I think, a degree to which the reality of being um, being in charge, the reality of being in the White House, um, stepped on this administration's uh, commitment to the recommendations of the report, right? Just because, you know, they had to deal with the world as it is. Um, I think Ukraine's a pretty good example of that, right? I don't, I don't think that much of what um, the administration has done in Ukraine is reflected by the thinking in the report. You're right, it really wasn't on our radar in writing it. Um, I, I do think what is notable, what I think is quite interesting when you think about the response in Ukraine, is what they haven't done, what they haven't said. Um, I should I should actually clarify, it's really what they haven't said as opposed to what they haven't done. Almost irrespective of sort of your politics or one's politics, um, I think it is fair to say that objectively, the United States response in Ukraine has been quite successful from the point of view of what the administration was trying to accomplish. Again, whether you're sort of, you know, for the administration or opposed to it, what they were trying to do, they've been pretty successful in, in, in trying to do it. Um, and you sort of put it in the foreign policy, foreign policy success column, at least at the moment, right? And what I think is intriguing, and I think is reflected in what the report was about, is how quiet the administration is about that relative to administrations over the last, you know, frankly, since sort of the, the post-war era, right? I mean, you know, what what U.S. president that um, helps a smaller country stand up to Russia isn't out there trumpeting that politically every day, right? And sort of, you know, kind of metaphorically beating their chest. I mean, you know, what's more appealing to an American president politically than that? Very few things historically. And yet this administration is rather quiet about that. They're really quite tepid. You know, the president talked about it some in the State of the Union. The president's given, you know, a couple of speeches about it. I mean, they, it's not like they hide the fact that we're engaged in Ukraine, but they certainly don't trumpet it the way that we're used to um, or the way that American presidents of the past would have, I think it's safe to say. Um, now you've got to ask yourself, why is that, right? And I think I think the answer to that, and Courtney, you, you alluded to it, I think the answer to it is the costs are mounting and there is this understanding that the American public is disenchanted with bearing the costs of American global leadership and being the the sort of the uh, providing the, the you know a global security umbrella to the rest of the world, being the guarantor of of global commerce that we've been in the post-war era without the associated benefits flowing home or the perceived associated benefits flowing home. And rightly or wrongly, I think because of that, the, this administration has taken a path that is like, we're not going to highlight this every day. We're not going to talk about how successful we've been. We're not going to talk about um, the, the challenges that, frankly, U.S. support for Ukraine has imposed on Russia. And I think that that's instructive. I mean, I think that's instructive at the very least about how the administration thinks about the politics of foreign policy. And frankly, I think they're probably right. I think it is instructive to think about how the American public thinks about American foreign policy at the moment. And so it gets back to, again, where Zach was. I think, you know, this riddle of how to how to convince the American public that the costs of 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 American global leadership are, again, worth bearing, I, that that question has not been resolved. 
All right. Well, we'll, we'll see if we can resolve it today. Um, Jonathan, minutes, right? We can do it. <laughs> exactly. Right. I think we can do that. Um, Jonathan, um, a lot of debate these days in the international affairs circles um, is really on the viability of the post-World War II liberal world order in what seems to be in an increasingly multipolar world. So how do you see Washington's ability to lead these critical financial systems, which arguably, as we uh, talked about earlier, benefit the American middle class, or at least pockets of the American middle class um, down the road? And what are some scenarios that, that you foresee that could impact the American middle class when it comes to um, leadership in you know, maintaining a post-World War II liberal world order? I think that's obviously a, a crucial question, and I want to answer that by agreeing and disagreeing with what Tom just discussed, because I think it's very illustrative of the phenomenon you're talking about, uh, this question of American policy toward uh, Ukraine. And the issue is, um, is the U.S. capable of engaging in a kind of sustained, far-sighted international foreign policy that is designed to provide long-run aggregate benefits to the U.S. In, in a very general sense. And we must reckon with the question of whether political dysfunction in the United States is so great that that may no longer be the case, because every political issue is immediately and instantly filtered through the lens of an extremely bitter, polarized, partisan conflict, regardless of the actual facts of the matter. And this is where I want to have a slight disagreement with Tom. I don't think America's efforts in the Ukraine have been all that costly in, a, in, in in kind of an absolute sense, or that they are significantly mounting. But rather, they are ab the benefits are abstract. Um, it, it is the, the policy, and I'm I'm no uh, you know flag waving supporter of everything the Biden administration does. But as a foreign policy analyst, I think that they have thread the needle of engaging uh, the Ukraine policy um, by being supportive, but not necessarily provocative with a remarkable skill. I think it's been an extremely successful uh, foreign policy so far. Obviously, uh, as I write, the future is unwritten. But the question is, what are the benefits of that? The benefits of that are general and abstract. Here we're seeing a very fine example of the fact that US political engagement globally, in this case in Europe, is making the world a better place for all Americans. It is in the interest of all Americans that Europe be peaceful, stable, prosperous, and not at each other's throats, even amongst our, our current and, and former allies. And so the pursuit of our policy in the Ukraine has been, excuse me, Ukraine has been very successful, I think, in shoring up all of those things. But can people see the immediate tangible benefits of a policy designed to bring about long-term abstract gains? No, they can't. And in the context of this very, very bitter and polarized political contestation, any foreign policy is immediately going to be the arena for bitter debate uh, and with people pointing fingers at each other solely for the purpose of that's what they do. And so I do think the question of American political global leadership uh, faces these two problems. One is that, is the U.S. capable of engaging in that type of global leadership when it is so dysfunctionally polarized politically at home? And the second is, the benefits of U.S. political leadership globally are abstract. Uh, the U.S. does benefit from this engagement, 
But again, these are long-term aggregate benefits, and most people can't see obviously why they would be benefiting from that in the short run. Couple that with the context of the enormous pressures we talked about earlier that middle-class families have been under for decades, and you can see why there is an erosion for support for this type of engaged internationalism because people can't see the benefits of long-term aggregate gains. And those gains that they do see, they see being disproportionately enjoyed by some rather than others, which again is necessarily going to be the outcome of any policy choice, which is why the failure, uh, as I've said before, is occurring at the level of domestic compensation, domestic engagement, making sure that if we're gaining as a country, that all participants in our national economy are finding a way to share in those benefits. There we go. I think I unmuted myself. Did I unmute myself? Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Um, terrific. Um, I wanted to, before I turn to the q and I wanted to use that idea as just a, a launching point um, for a question for both Zach and Tom, because I know you, you both said that you spent some time um, talking to people either through the report, Tom or Zach, um, uh, in your work. Um, Jonathan mentioned this idea of, you know, the, the abstract benefits of um, Biden, the Biden administration's policy in Ukraine. We've had, you know, I think some conversations just around this disconnect about what, um, you know, what Americans generally seem to want, especially in the realm of trade, um, and sort of what's happening on the on the global com community in terms of um, what allies and partners want. So I'd be curious to hear from you. You know, how much of this um, this disconnect is is it a communications problem? Is it an explaining problem of um, you know transcending these ideas? between the foreign policy and, and, um, and the ramifications on the ground, or is it something else? Um, what, what, what's your sense from, from people that you've spoken with? And I'll start with you, Zach, and then um, turn to Tom. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and uh, Tom and Jonathan may, may have better answers to this, but I, I'll just give you my two cents, which is um, if you look back at some of the polling data on trade, some very surprising things have happened, right? So go back to uh, 2016, right? Um, where we've all mentioned uh, both candidates, right? Were against the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, Donald Trump had really campaigned against it. And then three days into his time in office, he basically pulled the United States out of the negotiations. Um, he, for four years, just brutally attacks the concept of, of free trade. Um, and what's the response from the American people? Well, if you look at polling data, trade becomes far more popular and it doesn't become more popular with Democrats alone, although it did become more popular with Democrats. It becomes decidedly more popular with Republicans, including the Republicans who voted for Trump. So I think there's some really strange dynamics happening here, right? Which, um, look, you know, others may be able to explain what's going on here better than I can. Um, you know, the, the closest I can do is that it, it does come back to something that Jonathan said, which is people generally feel like trade is good for them. But then if you get into the specifics of a specific deal, they don't see the broad benefits. They only see the, you know, more discrete costs that might affect them. And so even though you have politicians who are being very critical of trade, 
trade became more popular during the Trump administration. But that didn't mean that you could then come in for the Biden team and see a broad base of support for re-entering, say, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and I just don't know how you get around this challenge, right? Because it's not the fact that trade is wildly unpopular. You know, something like 60, 65 percent of Americans, if you ask whether they support free trade, they do. Um, the problem is if you then go to Congress and ask how many members can you get to support a trade agreement or trade promotion authority, well, those numbers are way lower. And, and I think that has a lot to do, you know, coming back to something that both Tom and Jonathan mentioned earlier, with the domestic coalition and log rolling that you would need to actually get support from, from those voting members of Congress. And that's a very different question than, than broadly what the American people think. Thanks, Tom. Any any comments on your end from from the work that you did on the report or more? Yeah. I, I will say, first of all, as, as somebody who's spent time uh, trying to convince members of the importance of trade in, in TPA, Trade Promotion Authority, Zach is right. It is very, very difficult to do and not fun. I would not recommend it to my worst enemy. Um, but I, look, what I would say, and I think this goes back to something that Jonathan has been talking about throughout the conversation, right? This problem of the failure of compensation, if if, if that's what we want to call it. Is it, I, I look, I will say that as somebody who spent much of my career thinking about the foreign policy of trade and the foreign policy of international economics, for a long time, I was somebody who thought, look, we've got a communication problem. We've got to help people connect the dots and help people see it better. We've got to localize it. We've got to tell good stories. And that that's 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 part of it. That is That is helpful. That is important. But actually, I, I have come to the view um, over the course of years of, of work on these issues in this report that is actually quite a bit more than that, right? I mean, there. I think it is fair to say that because of some of the problems that Jonathan touched on, which we've all sort of danced around and alluded to, sort of our rather epic um, and dangerous political dysfunction at home, that's been going on for some time, right? It's not it's not brand new. We've been stuck with this for, for a long time. Um, I mean, you can go back uh, really in some ways before for this administration, um, though that was mostly partisan, you can go back literally decades to find the last time there's an example of bipartisan domestic economic reform. And so what we've seen, I think, over the course of decades is an ability for administrations to engage on things that were foreign policy focused. I'm going to talk about this at a pretty high level of generality right now. But some degree of success being able to talk about things that had a foreign policy element, including trade, but a total inability to make progress on domestic legislation. And so in some ways, what I like to say is for years, it was kind of the sound of one hand clapping. To make the most of trade agreements, you need to then pair an FTA, a foreign trade agreement, with attendant domestic legislation. And I don't mean authorizing legislation. I'm not talking about TPA. I'm talking about economic reforms that are targeted at making the most effective use of the agreement that you just completed, of the agreement you just negotiated. And we've never been able to do that. And we were unable to do that for years because of our domestic political dysfunction. And so the truth is, is that really going back to, um, you're going to tax me here a little bit, Courtney, I, I think it was 1985 or 86 that we completed our first FTA with Israel, right? So in the years since, right, all the way up through NAFTA and CAFTA and the chorus, all the other free trade agreements that we did, our work on the domestic side to maximize those agreements that we just negotiated that were hard, 
and costly and complicated was non-existent. We never stopped after those agreements and frankly hit the pause button and said, okay, let's now look at the agreement and figure out how to create clusters, how to figure out how to, how to take the opportunities that the, these agreements embody and maximize them for communities, which would of course enable Jonathan's point about compensation. We never did that. And so I think that there's actually a lot more to be said. And in some ways, again, I'm not trying to be overly political here, and there's plenty to criticize the Biden administration about. I think that when you look at things like the CHIPS, um, the CHIPS Act, when you look at things like the IRA, in some ways, they're trying to do this. They're trying to figure out how to modernize the American economy such that we can re-engage with the world on trade. All right. Thank you. That that was uh, an unexpected and very enlightening answer. So thank you very much. Um, Jonathan, we have a that it was enlightening. I, I hear that a lot. <laughs> um, jo Jonathan, we have a question here. Um, I'll direct it to you. But again, anyone feel free to jump in. Um, the person wants to know, what is the history of this conversation around foreign policy for the middle class? And is this disillusionment with foreign policy a 21st century issue? Um, well, I will answer this and then defer to Zach, who I think was uh, better able to speak to the specifics of this. But to get all professory on you, um, I do think that this is um, this roots back to the end of the Cold War, um, to to the turn of the 1990s, so 30 plus years ago, because the Cold War was the glue that held together a lot of the internationalist foreign policy consensus. And when the Cold War ended, there was um, and I was there uh, as a spectator, um, a lot of real confusion about what to do next, what the American vision mission was globally. And it took a few years for this to shake out, and it did shake out uh, as an embrace of globalization. And I do think that that embrace of globalization accelerated some of the trends that we had seen already developing from the 1970s. And to get really way out there, professory with you, I do think it also accelerated a certain type of culture of capitalism, that in the 1950s and the 1960s, the practice of capitalism in the United States uh, was a little more self-restrained, uh, that it was more perhaps because of the shared experience of World War II or memories of the trauma of the Great Depression, that there was a more of a sense that both kind of management and workers were in this all together. And I think there were some important ideational shifts developed in the 80s and into the 90s toward what we now call today a kind of shareholder value capitalism, or what I would be more likely to call a Dickensian vision of capitalism, in which all actors take what they can take as much as they can take. And since some actors in our economy are more empowered than others, um, they are able to achieve more success at getting their share. So I think you have these twin factors rooting back to the 80s and 90s, the end of the Cold War and a shift in the culture of capitalism that has really put a tremendous amount of pressure on the idea of what is the purpose of sustained American global international economic engagement. Zach, is there anything you would want to add to that? Yeah, just, just a not, quick I point. Yeah. yeah, I think there's... This goes directly to what Jonathan was just saying, which there's a real challenge here, which is mentioned very directly in the excellent Carnegie report on this, which is that it's not clear that the American people have a clear mission 
for current U.S. foreign policy, right? And I, I think it, there hasn't been a clear mission, except for maybe a year or two after 9-11, for at least 30 years. And I think part of the challenge, therefore, is to try and connect what the United States is doing with something that the American people should really deeply care about. And not just a small subset of the American people, but I mean, a large portion of the American people. Now, and the report acknowledges that that maybe the answer to that question is something related to China, right? Um, it's certainly closer than anything else I can think of today, right? That the United States has lots of concerns about China, both with its economic practices, its political practices, its assertiveness in, in terms of its international behavior. And maybe you're starting to see a coalition build on China issues politically within the United States. It's it's a very fractured coalition at the moment, but I think you're seeing efforts to build it. But I have to say, I'm not sure at the moment that it's enough to get the American people to really unite behind some key issues. So I'll just give you one quick example and then hand it back to you, Courtney, which is I thought maybe when China started talking seriously about entering the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that a whole bunch of people in Washington, D.C. would panic and say, this is crazy. We created or really bought into the Trans-Pacific Partnership in part as a way to compete with China. And now the U.S. has pulled out and China's going to get in. Well, boy, we have to change something. This, this is a terrible outcome. We have to do something differently. And in fact, I think to the extent that people in Washington paid any attention to the fact that China is now ha having a serious chance of getting into the Trans-Pacific Partnership, most people kind of shrugged their shoulders and, and went back to their <laughs> usual business. So I think the lack of a unifying mission is a, is a challenge here. But even if we had that unifying mission, I don't know at the moment if it's enough to surpass some of these questions that the American people have, especially on, on trade policy and how much it's benefited them personally. Thank you. And that's actually a good point for this next question. So I'm going to stay with you, Zach, um, also because you're in Washington. And again, Tom, Jonathan, please feel free to jump in. Um, but the questioner mentioned Senator Cantwell's exchange with uh, U.S. Trade Rep Ty yesterday, highlighting Sony's monopolistic behavior in, high, in the high-end gaming market. Do you see the incongruence between geopolitical goals with domestic political interest growing? And how do you see Washington resolving this? I, I think this is a huge problem. So look, you know, it, it, are there countries around the world other than China that are protectionist in certain areas? Of course, right? Um, now the problem for the United States is the United States is calling out protectionism in other countries while we are being quite protectionist ourselves, right? And And while we're doing things like massive subsidies from the state to certain sectors, which we've called out China and others for doing for decades. Now, those things, in my view, would be easier to defend if we were not just directing those subsidies towards companies operating in the U.S., but sort of having a broad-based approach with our allies and partners where we said, look, we need semiconductor supply chain security, which means we want more supply chain, uh, more of that supply chain to be in Korea and Japan and the Netherlands and Taiwan. Um, and it doesn't really matter if you're building plants in Arizona or in some part of, of Japan or Korea, all of that's good for us. I think the problem is that's hard to sell domestically in the United States. So, you know, this is where Catherine Tai, the U.S. trade representative, has has an incredibly tough job. And, and she knows more about 
U.S. trade in Asia than just about anybody in Washington, right? Um, but I, I think when when folks in Asia start asking Catherine Tai, what's what's your approach on trade? They don't get a lot of answers. And so part of the reason is Catherine Tai is trying to fight for American producers. But, you know, our allies and partners are going to fight for their producers as well. And and unless we are able to come up with an approach that really starts by saying, look, we have to friend shore. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to convince many of our friends to give up some of their protectionist efforts uh, if we're not doing the same things here. Thank you. Um, Tom, I'm going to turn to you with this next question. Um, I'm going to read it verbatim. I don't know if the stats in it are correct, so uh, take that with a grain of salt, uh, just because I haven't had a chance to fact check them. But um, it says that manufacturing jobs account for only 10% of the US labor workforce. Why do we keep focusing on bringing these jobs back? Even without China, these jobs will not be back because of robots and AI. How do we communicate that with the US middle class? Um. So I, I don't I, I don't recall. I mean, I should probably I probably did know once upon a time whether or not those numbers are correct, but let's just assume they are. Um, I, I, I want to be very clear about this because the, the report and the emphasis of the report was not on manufacturing per se. And that that is not, um, at least in our view, is the authors of the report. Um, our, our contention wasn't that the loss of manufacturing jobs was something we wanted to sort of reverse. Or that we were we were going to sort of fully reverse. Could we do a better job of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but even when I was talking a moment ago about sort of the clusters of opportunity idea um, that we never engaged in the U.S., it wasn't focused entirely on manufacturing. Rather, I think what is important, and I think that this is salient politically, is that the loss, the accelerated loss of manufacturing jobs particularly in some ways after China joined the WTO and then again after the financial crisis in, in 2008, was used as sort of a symbol of Washington's failure, you know, in sort of in the, the, the sort of the political uh, rhetoric of today, the failure of elites to make an American foreign policy that was actually benefiting the American people. It wasn't that we want to reverse the flow of manufacturing jobs. Rather, it was that this outflow of manufacturing jobs is an example that's so often used and, and does resonate with people because it kind of gets at this um, sort of sepia-toned view of what America was like in the 50s, right? With everybody having a, a great, well-paying manufacturing job, right? It kind of it kind of has that like evocative appeal for politics, right? And that the outflow of those manufacturing jobs and the decimation of these towns across the American heartland. I mean, I'm from Ohio, right? It like that stuff resonates in, in my state. Um, that it is an example of a policy failure that these out of touch foreign policy elites that, you know, Trump's globalists aren't looking out for you. And so I just, I suppose in some ways, I would just sort of say that the idea wasn't about bringing those jobs back, it was more that these people who lost these jobs in the first place can't be trusted to help you build your future. Um, in, in the few minutes we have remaining, I, I want to use one of the questions in the Q&A box as, as a bit of a launch point to try to um, get to you all in sort of a lightning round. Um, we focused a lot about trade um, in this call. And so, um, you know, aside from trade, 
what is, you know, the number one policy or um, decision that you would want to see happen from an administration in order to um, have more resonance within the middle class and um, behind U.S. foreign policy? Um, so we can, I guess, start with you, Tom, and then go backwards. Um, yeah, I, I'll just hit on something that I alluded to, Courtney, when, when you had dropped earlier, and maybe this is annoying or unsatisfying to people, but honestly, it's on process. Um, I think breaking down the silos between the foreign policy and the, the economic policy is essential because the idea that they kind of exist in two separate realms, I think, is is fanciful and not right. Um, and having been somebody who who tried for years to break those down, um, you know, I, th I think it's I think that that's really important. I think we need I need to we need to get rid of the ideas that foreign policy and economic policy exist in, in separate universes. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, Jonathan, what's your take? Um, I'm back to domestic politics uh, as, as the roots of all of this. Um, and very briefly, I just want to stress that I think that we are still living in the world defined by the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Not the global financial crisis itself, which was actually pretty well managed by our authorities, but rather the what followed from that. Uh, in which, as Martin Wolf said in his excellent book, The Shifts and the Shocks, one of the best books out there about the global financial crisis, we sort of left the system in place. And it is reasonable that people thought, as Wolf described, that well-connected insiders, indeed the ones who brought us the crisis, were protected from the worst of the crisis and did just fine. But the American economy as a whole, not surprisingly, this is what happens after financial crisis, endured the Great Recession that followed. And I think that this was most of some of the, one of the most important sources of the fuel of populism on both the left and the right and contributed mightily to that political dysfunction that's going to make it hard to exercise a far-sighted foreign policy designed to advance the aggregate American interest. And so revisiting questions like basic reform of a financial economy and rethinking questions like who has access to the levers of power the revolving door between Washington and Wall Street continues to spin. It is a real problem. People can see that and understand it. And even if I don't like the choices they've made with their anger, I think they are justifiably angry to observe that. All right, thank you. And last but not least, Zach. Well, I'll just be brief and say, you know, I, I think for me, uh, the question of whether you can sort of unite again, these, these two different camps or multiple different camps really, is, is probably coming back to this question I raised a few minutes ago about whether you can provide a mission that um, all of the, the various parties believe is important, right? And I think it's gonna be tough. I, I think, as Jonathan said, I, I think the Biden team has handled Ukraine about as well as one could hope for any administration to handle it. And yet you're starting to see uh, some, some breaks in the support for its approach. So I think this is going to be really difficult, but I, I think without that unifying mission like we had in the Cold War, it's going to be very difficult to sustain this kind of domestic consensus. All right. On that note, um, thank you all. Um, I really appreciate uh, your, your time and really fantastic insights. I thank you, everyone, and have a wonderful weekend. For more insight and analysis on global issues, and to learn more about how you can join our community, visit us at network2020.org.